It is the 23rd of April, and you're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can only mean one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Adrian Gallo. And I'm Lillian Padgett Cobb. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we are joined by Kelsey Keene from the Department of Biochemistry and Biophysics. Good evening, Kelsey. Okay, let's try that again. Good evening, Kelsey. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, thank you for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Um, how about you give our listeners a, a little taste of what it is you do in the Department of Biochemistry and Biophysics? Okay, so what I do is study proteins, and proteins basically do everything. So if anything that's like working right in your body, like you can see, you can hear, you're digesting your food, proteins are involved. Um, if you have any sort of disease, proteins are involved. If you have an infection, proteins are involved. Um, so proteins do basically everything. And understanding what proteins look like um, is important for understanding how they work and understanding maybe how things are going wrong or how we can um, design a drug to target that protein and make it work better or make it not work. Um, and so the way we do this in my lab is using um, X-ray protein crystallography, so you can get a really pure, um, concentrated um, sample of a protein, and then you can grow crystals of it. And these crystals are sort of like salt crystals, but instead of the ions of salt making up the crystal, um, the protein molecules actually do. So very ordered protein molecules. And then you can take these crystals and shoot x-rays at them, and the x-rays will bounce off the atoms in the protein in a certain way, and you can collect um, that image and use the information in that image, so like where the uh, spots are located and how dark they are, and actually use that information to go backwards and figure out where all the atoms were originally positioned and get an idea of what the protein looks like. All right, awesome. Now, I was wondering, why would you want to know what the protein structure is? Why does that, um, why is that interesting for us to know something about the function? Um, because structure, so basically how the protein looks affects how it works. And so if we know what it looks like, we can get an idea of how it actually works on a molecular level. And so, like I said, if something's going wrong and that protein isn't working right, like if you have a mutation, which is usually like one or more amino acids has changed, a lot of times that'll change the way the protein works and that can cause diseases. And that's because it's making the protein work differently. Um, and so it looks differently usually also. Um, so it has a lot of different applications um, in terms of like designing drugs and understanding how diseases are caused. And also if you want to make a protein do something different, which is like an industry or something like that, then understanding what the protein looks like and what you're starting with, and you can make changes and try and have it have a new um, function or work better or just work differently in some way. 
So the idea, right, being that if you know what the protein looks like, then perhaps you can design a drug to fit into the protein yeah. and thereby treat the dysfunctional protein. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, I actually want to go back to something you said in the very beginning because uh, it blew my mind just a little bit, but th there was just so much cool stuff that, it, you know, that that mushroom cloud had then blown over. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but your description of, you know, the, you know, what proteins do in our body, basically, if, if, if everything is going right in our body, proteins uh, are, are causing that to go right. If something does go wrong, then proteins are kind of could be uh, at, at the center of that. So the way I'm thinking about, you know, what you're doing is like being able to enunciate every letter in the alphabet. But if you can enunciate all the letters, then you can kind of build vocabulary and ideas and kind of portray that between people. But if you can't understand it at the fundamental level, so the structure of proteins, you know, uh, enunciating every letter, then we can't really uh, do anything larger than just individual words. And we can't, um, can't do anything bigger in science, like design drugs to, you know, really target specific proteins. So my question is to you, do you have an example of a specific drug or, um, or a protein that you've looked at in the past that has, you know, some specific function for us? Um, yeah, so that's actually a really good way of putting it, like, because proteins are, you know, involved in really complex pathways. And so your point about understanding um, each of these individual components and understanding how the whole thing works is really important. And understanding structure is um, important for that. So um, there, for example, um, so I work on a bunch of different proteins, but one that comes to mind is um, human carbonic anhydrase. And um, in humans, um, it's basically expressed in your entire body and it's important for um, controlling pressure in your eyes, for example, and regulating the pH of your blood. And, um, and the pH of our blood can only go plus or minus like a yeah. 10th. Yeah, of a it's pH like unit. very, very well regulated. And so this yeah. um, is one of those proteins involved in regulating your blood pH. And it also is involved in bone development. So it's like really Everywhere. important for so many things. <laughs> and um, it's actually a protein that can be. Um, injected if you have like uh, glaucoma it can be injected into your eye to help treat mm. your glaucoma because that's related to the pressure in your eye um, and so it's important for us in terms of like so many functions as humans uh, but we can also use this for um, like industrial purposes so engineering so this enzyme is responsible for taking carbon dioxide and turning it into um, bicarbonate which we can store and so outside of living things, we can use it for carbon sequestration. So one of the things I'm working on a collaboration with um, Ryan Mel's lab in my department, and they're interested in attaching this protein to surfaces so that um, in the future it can be put inside the flu stacks of like um, factories and actually like capture the carbon dioxide in a form that it can be stored before it's released into the atmosphere. So this is so cool to hear that a single protein can have so many different functions but in order for us to really begin to utilize what those functions can be, whether it be for an individual person that suffers from glaucoma or on the large scale application, industrial, you know, uh, application for putting on smokestacks to decrease the amount of carbon dioxide that's released in the air. We really can't do any of this unless we understand what the protein looks like. Yeah. So can you describe a little bit as to how you go from uh, we understand maybe the, the black box of the protein, but how do you understand what the protein even looks like to begin with? What's that process look like to uncover that? Um, so 
First, we start with, like I said, a really pure concentrated protein sample. And it sounds very difficult to get that in general, wouldn't it? Uh, so <laughs> it can be. It totally depends on the protein. So some of the proteins we work with, and carbonic anhydrase is one of these, um, is very well behaved. And most of our proteins are expressed recombinantly, which means we take the genes, we put them into E. coli, you grow like tons of E. coli, and then you harvest them and get the protein from them. And some proteins are really well behaved, so they um, are okay at high concentrations, they're okay at different salt concentrations and different pHs, and some are a lot more finicky, so maybe they don't even express well in the E. coli cells, and maybe they don't really stay soluble in solution. It's like a Goldilocks that you're always trying to yeah. find. <laughs> <laughs> so we get our protein sample. Sometimes um, we express those ourselves. Sometimes our collaborators send them. And then you take your protein sample and you try and figure out a condition in which it'll crystallize. And so in our lab, we have um, a robot that can do this for us. And we have different sets of buffers. And each of these sets is about 100 solutions. And so we can set up uh, these trays with our robot testing each of these different solutions with our protein. And we have maybe five sets of 100 in our lab that we use. And then you basically watch and see if crystals grow. And sometimes you'll get really nice crystals right away, and sometimes you have to optimize the conditions or change the concentrations of the salts and precipitants or change the pH. And once you have that crystal, you we send those to the synchrotron, which is in California, and it's a really... Hold on. What's a synchrotron? <laughs> so it's like a super powered x-ray in California and you send your samples. And then for us, we work remotely and we actually like log into their computers and then operate this robot that like moves our samples around in front of the x-ray beam. And then you say... Wait, remotely, meaning like you're in Corvallis while your samples are in California and the robot is... In California. And I'm, yeah, so I'm sitting at my computer wherever. It happens to be in Corvallis, usually. I'm guessing like bunny slippers with a hot cocoa. <laughs> yes, I often am sitting on my couch with my dog next to me. Um, and you can also go to California and do this. But for us, it's way easier to just send our samples and we stay here. And I was wondering, though, how do you send the samples? Because that seems like it might be a very delicate process to say the least. Yes, the actually that's sticker on the box. Yes. I don't really trust very much. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, the first part of sending the crystals is scooping the crystals. So they're growing in these trays and usually the crystals, um, are small enough that you have to use like a dissecting microscope to look at them. Sometimes they're big enough that you can look at the tray and say like, okay, there's a crystal there, but you can't see the individual crystals very well. And I just want to put in a plug because uh, Kelsey actually gave us some pictures for our blog and they are super, super cool. <laughs> so if you want to see what these crystals look like, uh, you can check out our blogs or our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration. You can see photos of what Kelsey is describing there. It's super cool. Um, so then I... I basically am working under a microscope and I have these tiny like metal loops that I have to scoop my crystal into. So I have to kind of like catch it in there. And then we're all this is also under liquid nitrogen. So then I freeze my crystal in liquid nitrogen. Remind us how cold liquid nitrogen is for those that don't know. Uh, like minus 180 degrees Celsius, I think. It's a little chilly. It's very cold. You will get like... <laughs> I've gotten many liquid nitrogen burns <laughs> while doing this. And then we take our samples and we put them in these, what we call pucks. And they literally look like hockey pucks. And they have these sort of little compartments that your loops can go into. And then you like close them up, put them in our doer. 
and ship the doer in the mail and everything stays cold and then it gets to California and they put more liquid nitrogen in so it stays cold and set you up with a robot and then you can operate the robot and it moves everything around for you. So at the point where you're sending your sample and it's all set up and you're about to shine the x-ray light beam onto your protein crystal sample. So take us through that step where you have your sample and you shine the light and then you get this electron density map. So you get, first you'll get a diffraction image. So you'll put, you'll have your crystal in front of the beam and then you'll shoot the x-rays at it and the x-rays will bounce off of all of the atoms in the protein. And based on how... this is why you need a very defined and repeating crystal structure. So that way the beam that bounces off is is a consistent bounce, I should say. (laughs) Yeah. And so they're, and so it's like amplified too, because there's so many proteins in it as well. And so you get these patterns that are basically just like spots on a film and you can rotate the crystal around and keep shooting x-rays at it and get a whole set of these images. And then we take those images and have some software that basically looks at like where all of the spots are on the images and how dark they are. And through some other processing and other information that's involved, um, you can actually get the electron density map from that, from those spots basically. And then we get that map and that's what's sort of our puzzle to solve and that's what we fill or fit the um, like atoms into of the protein. So you have to like model them into this kind of more blobby map. You know, this actually it makes me think of of uh, if you were to get a time series snapshot of a Jackson Pollock painting, <laughs> just like you know the splatters on the wall. If you were to get a time series of that, you're able to kind of back calculate which colors. They put on first and second and third and fourth, and then you can figure out like, okay, what did the, what did it look like before? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's really cool. And this has actually been a really important landmark technique. And actually this is, um, using x-ray crystallography was actually how the structure of DNA was elucidated, right? Yeah. So this is important work being done. Yeah. So um, the original structure of DNA was solved using um, x-ray diffraction. And then I think there's been quite a few Nobel prizes that have been awarded to for solving structures using crystallography. Yeah. And that's a really interesting story too, with the discovery of DNA as well. Check that out. Rosalind Franklin. Ooh, that's yeah. And uh, for that. OSU actually has a copy of photo 51, which is the original whoa, image whoa. of photo 51. Yeah. Yeah, photo what is, 51. Whoa, what is this? <laughs> um, so photo 51 is the original image that Rosalind Franklin collected. That was like the first diffraction image of DNA. And I think there's less than four copies in the world. And um, she sent one to... Wait, say it again? <laughs> there are less than four copies in the world of this original DNA diffraction pattern. That is what I've been told. By, and OSU has one. And OSU has one. And they got it because, so Linus Pauling is was affiliated with OSU, and OSU has all of his papers. He has, there's the Ava Helen and Linus Pauling collection here at OSU. And so at some point, Rosalind Franklin was good friends with Linus Pauling and <laughs> sent him one of the original photos. And so now it's at OSU. And if you talk to the like head curator at Special Collections where they store this, 
he's kind of like, yeah, well, there might be four, but it's not really confirmed. So there might be at two. least, <laughs> yeah, there might be two, maybe four at most four is what it sounds like. So have you that's been cool. lucky enough to see it? I have actually. I'm very jealous. Yeah. I'm so very jealous. <laughs> I, I think I saw it too. And I had no idea that that's, that that was actually one of the originals. So mm-hmm. it's sort of unassuming. So yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, keep it, yeah keep and it's it just tense. like, if you go to special collections, it's just like sitting there like, well, yeah, just photo 51, you yeah, know, no big deal. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, so for those listeners that are just joining in, this is inspiration dissemination. And, uh, we are speaking to Kelsey Keene, who's part of the department of uh, biochemistry and biophysics. And she just divulged the fact that OSU has a very secret photo 51 where it was the first uh, diffraction pattern uh, from X-ray crystallography out of DNA. And that's only like one of four or maybe even less that we that we have. Um, but I think we got down the rabbit hole a little bit. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm really curious to hear how the heck did you get into X-ray crystallography to begin with? You know, like how, how did your, uh, you know, love of science or maybe just biology in general come to be? Um, so I guess if I'm going back to how I started to like science, I'll go way, way back. Whoa. Okay. Um, let's take the time portal. <laughs> <laughs> so I grew up in a family that's like pretty science oriented. So my mom has her PhD in, bio- PhD in biochemistry and my dad is a software engineer and most of my extended family are either teachers or scientists. So I grew up in like a pretty scientific environment. And so I kind of just always liked science and math since I was a kid. And I really liked like all my science classes, all my math classes growing up. And in middle school and high school, I was in science Olympiad, which is like a competition where you do different uh, challenges, if you will. And some of them involve like building something. Some of them involve like just knowing a ton of information about birds and answering questions about birds. (laughs) Uh, but they're all just like science related. And so mine was building a Rube Goldberg machine with simple machines and it had to do a task at the end. So one year it was like you had to raise a flag at the end with your machine. Um, and so that was really cool. And then was that the first time that you were tasked with kind of solving a problem, and even though this problem was, you know, raising a flag, was that the first time you were tasked with kind of doing this on your own and figuring out and tinkering of make this work? We're not going to tell you how there's no, you know, solution a, there's only solution infinity, but make it work. Yeah. I think that probably was actually, that's a good point. Cause oh. I think like in most science classes, when you're in like middle school and high school, it's more less actual problem solving and more just like learning things or like doing a lab with written directions or something like that. So yeah, it probably was. Hmm. And then in high school, I still like science and stuff. And I went to college at the University of Tulsa in Oklahoma, and I majored in biochemistry. And one summer when I was in- Hold on. I'd like to ask. So your mother also has a PhD in biochemistry. Mm-hmm. So did she nudge you that direction, or did it just happen organically? Um, oh, no. She definitely did not. <laughs> she was not opposed to me going into biochemistry, but um, she never pushed me towards biochemistry. I was kind of like, do whatever you want. And- <laughs> It just, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm curious. What, um, what position was she at when you were like in high school and undergrad? Were you, um, had she already completed her PhD at that point? Yeah. So she got her PhD before I was born. And then when I was growing up, she was like a research associate, kind of like perma postdoc position at Johns Hopkins. And then, um, 
she became a stay-at-home mom when my brother was born. So for most of my time growing up, after my brother was born, she wasn't working. So like when I was in high school and college, she was a stay-at-home mom. So in undergrad, though, you majored in biochemistry, but you also minored you minored in math as well. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. That yeah. sounds tough. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like that sounds really tough to do both. <laughs> uh, it was definitely challenging at times, and but I did it because I enjoyed it. So I I liked biochemistry because like going into college, I really liked chemistry, but I liked biology too. So it seemed kind of like a good in between fit. Mm-hmm. And then as I was taking my required math classes for biochemistry, um, I really liked them. And so I decided I wanted to take more math and was actually at one point planning to double major in math. But then I got to like high level math classes like topology and stuff like that. And it was just terrible and I didn't enjoy (laughs) it anymore. (laughs) So then I was like, no, I don't need to do this. I'll just do a minor in math. So So in addition to your science studies, which were in themselves quite rigorous, you were actually a division one athlete, right? In rowing. Yes, I was about that because that's impressive and really cool. Um, so in, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, and so their rowing is pretty big. And so a lot of high schools have their own rowing teams. And so I rowed in high school and then I was recruited to row at the university of Tulsa on their women's rowing team. And I did that all four years. And that was definitely, um, challenging because being a division one athlete has a lot of time constraints in terms of, in terms of practice, in terms of traveling for, um, regattas and like taking time to recover, things like that. But it was definitely worth it. And I think like helped me become the person I am now, like growing in high school and growing in college definitely had profound impacts on me as a person and kind of the things I still carry through as a graduate student, like my work ethic, I think, and, focus and things like that. So it was definitely an awesome experience, but also challenging. Balancing a science major with being a division one athlete was definitely challenging at times. Yeah. I I think we speak, or I've spoken to a lot of graduate students and a lot of things they've said that they learned very quickly was time management, but going from high school to college, also being a division one athlete, you know, your time is structured pretty rigorously because you have morning practice, evening practice, you have classes, and you're trying to do all these extra things. How do you think that prepared you for coming to graduate school? It definitely helped me with my time management because that was certainly something you had to get down right away in college, especially like transitioning from high school to college where things are just challenging in general, making that transition, let alone going to practicing minimum 20 hours a week for rowing in addition to like other things that you have to do. Um, and going back to your time at, uh, at Tulsa, was there a, was there a period where you thought to yourself, I'm doing too much? There are times where it's definitely challenging. So one of the main problems I faced, and I think a lot of athletes face this is basically scheduling classes and having practice. So for me in science, a lot of my lab courses were in the afternoon and that's when we practice. So then you have to figure out like, I'm going to class, I'm missing practice. So then I have to make up the workout for practice. So there are definitely times like that where it was just like challenging and just like a lot to handle. But I think the experience of being a division one athlete is worth all the struggle you go through being a division one athlete. So, and the, the friendships you make and the relationships you have and the experiences you have are totally worth it. Although it's certainly challenging. (laughs) So where, 
the heck did you find the time to decide I'm going to go to graduate school, let alone apply to graduate school? How, how did that transition for you? Well, so I'm definitely, I think, at least in science, is sort of an exception in that I didn't have that much research experience coming into graduate school. So I only had... Well, you didn't have any time, right? Right. And yeah, so most of the time I was competitively rowing in the summers, which is when a lot of people get in their like summer research experience. And so there's one summer I didn't row and I did a research internship at Hompton Woodward Institute in Buffalo, New York. And what is that exactly? Um, It's an institute associated with the University of Buffalo and basically all they do is crystallography. Oh. So I did... um, a summer internship there and that was like my one research experience that I had and that was like really cool I really liked it I learned I got my feet wet sort of in protein crystallography at a very basic level I definitely didn't really get the whole thing then um, and I like that I always just like enjoyed my courses and as cliche as it sounds I still like wanted to continue learning so going to graduate school seemed like the right thing that I wanted to do. So I applied. Yeah. <laughs> you somehow managed the time to apply to graduate school in between morning practice, evening practice, labs, your minor, your major. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just totally blown away. <laughs> I know, right? And so you decided to come to OSU. What led you in that direction? So I applied to mostly places on the East Coast um, since that's where I'm from. And OSU is the one place on the West Coast that I applied to. And I actually um, learned about OSU from a Time Magazine article that was about nutraceuticals and like micronutrients. And at that time, I was really interested in that sort of um, research. And they mentioned the Linus Pauling Institute. So I looked up the Linus Pauling Institute and saw it was associated with the Department of Biochemistry and Biophysics. And so I decided to apply. And I came out and visited and just really liked it, liked all the people here, the faculty here, the research that was going on, and just generally like the environment of the department and the university. And basically decided that I would move across the country and go to school here. So so you flew pretty far away from home to make a little nest here in Corvallis. You know, how important was your were your initial impressions of the department and the students to your decision? Um, well, I actually drove here across the country wow. <laughs> to clarify. Um, I did not know that. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people um, that I know here from the East Coast have driven and it is, it takes a long time, but it's cool. Yeah. But uh, meeting everyone here definitely informed my decision, like meeting the other graduate students in thinking sort of like, these are people that I could be friends with, I think. And I am friends with them now, but um, and meeting the faculty who are in our department, even if they're not, uh, young in age or young at heart, I think, and still very like engaged in their research and engaged in their graduate students and training them. And Corvallis is just really beautiful. And it was sunny for part of my visit, even though it was February. Uh, <laughs> it did rain a little bit, but it's just like, a, yeah. So my impressions here when I came to visit definitely kind of convinced me to make that move across the country. One thing I want to kind of backtrack or really fast forward, I guess, now that we're um, with your present work, in addition to your lab work that you do, um, you're also extensively involved in STEM outreach. Mm -hmm. And so you're involved in a couple of programs, right? Yes. Tell us about those. Um, So since I came here, I've gotten pretty involved in outreach and realized that's kind of something that like 
uh, is my purpose, perhaps I could say I've been learning about purpose a lot lately. Um, in this class I'm taking creating happiness, which I grad five ninety nine, I think highly recommend it. So that's my plug for graduate school classes. What's the title of the course? Creating happiness. Oh, that's sweet. And so I feel like doing outreach is something that really like inspires me and like gives me motivation to like continue doing my research, which I do enjoy doing, but like STEM outreach is like a whole nother level for me. Um, so one of the things I do here is run, um, a biochemistry summer camp for middle schoolers and that's through STEM Academy. And it's run by Kathy law, who is amazing and runs so many awesome outreach programs here. And so it's basically, um, a one week summer camp that we've run, for the past three years and we're running it again this summer and we do just like a whole bunch of different biochemistry activities with um kids that are in seventh through ninth grade and i've gotten over the years like an awesome team of graduate students to help me and we do a bunch of different things like they work with green fluorescent protein and get to purify it they um grow protein crystals. That's obviously my activity. They, <laughs> Probably the best activity too, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> um, they do a zebrafish activity where they have this zebrafish knockdown that can't hear properly. And so it can't like sense waves in water. And so they do like a test to see how does that fish behave compared to a normal fish. That one's really cool. And just a bunch of different things, um, depending on who, which graduate students are helping that year. Um, so that's really cool and really neat to work with those kids. Um, I also help with Discovering the Scientists Within, which is an activity at OSU where they bring in like 150 to 200 middle school girls from across Oregon. So there's girls that come from like the coast, come from Portland, um, come from all over. And they are an OSU's campus for half a day and they do two different science activities and get some tours and things like that. And so I usually lead one of those activities. Um, those are my two main ones. But and this is all on your personal time. You're totally volunteering for these for these things, aren't you? Yeah, but I really uh, like to do stuff like that. So yesterday, for example, um, I don't know anything about ocean sciences, but I was volunteering at the National Ocean Sciences Bowl, which was held at OSU yesterday. So uh-huh. OSU hosts the Salmon Bowl, which is their regional bowl every year, and I help with that too. I see you're wearing a shirt that says yeah. Salmon yeah. Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so this year, OSU is hosting the Nationals, so all of the winning teams from regional bowls across the country came here, like Friday, yesterday, and today, to compete. And so I helped at that too. And I don't know anything about ocean sciences, but it's still really cool. So <laughs> one thing that stands out to me is that you came from a family of scientists basically, but you're really involved in outreach. Do you think your exposure, your early exposure to science um, impacted your desire to uh, be involved in outreach? Definitely. So like growing up, I never like thought it was weird to be a woman in science. I never thought um, because I was a woman, I shouldn't like science or I shouldn't be good at science or I shouldn't like math. And I think that's in part because of like how I grew up. That was totally normal to be a woman in science. And I went to like an all girls high school. So everybody there was a woman and anyone who's good at science was a woman. Um, you had some nerds. You had some jocks still. Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I know everybody is not that fortunate to grow up in that environment. And I know a lot of girls like in middle school go through a phase where, you know, they loved science and now all of a sudden they don't like science. And so I, 
I definitely think I'm fortunate in my experiences and had a lot of um, good education, a lot of activities I was involved in, like Science Olympiad, a lot of amaz- amazing science teachers in my education. And so um, I can only hope to like pay that forward and have that effect on um, another like budding scientist. And so women in science are my particular interest, but any budding scientist, I'm happy to <laughs> encourage and support. So, you know, so as we're coming to the end, to the end of our time, I, I would like to ask, this sounds very reminiscent of your time in undergrad where, you know, you're doing biochemistry, biophysics or biochemistry as well as a math minor. And then on top of that, an NCAA athlete. Mm-hmm. And then here, you know, you're, you're a PhD student doing some really cool stuff with X-ray crystallography, yet you're also highly involved in STEM and STEM outreach. So I wonder what is in the future for you? You know, do you plan on continue, continuing your, you know, doctoral work or do you plan on doing, you know, really jumping into this heavy STEM advocacy uh, group? Um, so I'm planning to defend my PhD in about a year. And um, I think STEM outreach will always be something that I'm like actively engaged in and seeking opportunities for. But I also really like education. And so my plan is when I graduate um, to look for and apply for programs that have postdocs in scientific research and teaching. And a lot of those are you're at a large research university like OSU and you're doing research there. So that's like a traditional postdoc position. And then you're partnered with a small, primarily undergraduate university and you're teaching there. So like one year is teaching intensive and you're also doing research. And so I think that's kind of what I'm leaning towards, maybe working at a um, primarily undergraduate institution at some point, but to be determined. <laughs> well, that's, I think that's better than, than most graduate students because I definitely don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> but I only came to that uh, realization like a couple months ago and I'm a fifth year graduate student. So <laughs> it takes time, I think. It's a fluid yeah. process, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so one thing we do on the show here is at the end, we ask for a piece or two of advice that you might have for yourself in the past or to another graduate student or someone considering graduate school. Maybe a budding scientist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I asked the host if I could give two pieces of advice before we started. So I have two pieces of advice, neither of which are really for a budding scientist per se. Maybe a budding scientist. Um, So my first piece of advice is, and this is um, advice that someone, one of the faculty actually in our department gave me when I was visiting here. And I think um, it served me well and is something that I even probably like was thinking about and was advice I was using before someone actually gave it to me. And that was that, um, so if you're starting graduate school or undergraduate or even a postdoc or something like that, a lot of times you aren't really tied down. So a lot of graduate students aren't married. You probably don't have, you might not have kids. You probably don't own a house. And so it's a good time to kind of like take that leap and move across the country and try somewhere new. And if with graduate school or postdoc or something like that, you're going to be in that town for four to six years, maybe, maybe less. And you might find somewhere you really love, which is like what happened to me with Corvallis, or you might not like it. And then you just leave when you're done. But I think it's worth taking that risk and trying somewhere new, especially if you're not, you don't have a lot of responsibilities necessarily. Um, And so that served me well in like deciding to come to OSU or even going to college in Tulsa, I think, and will probably serve me well in deciding where to do a postdoc next. And my other piece of advice, and this is one that um, I need to take myself, I need to give myself this advice too. And I think it's for any um, 
graduate student is that it's okay to say no. And that's something I'm still learning. You don't always have to say yes. You can say no. And when you say no, you don't have to feel bad about it (laughs) because you can't do everything. Sometimes you have to look out for yourself and do things that are in your best interest. And that might involve telling someone no. I like that. I think it's, that's really solid advice. Super true. And make sure that you keep your own sanity while going through this process of graduate school. (laughs) I think that's pretty important stuff. Yeah. And sometimes that becomes more clear as you get into the process of um, acquiring a little bit of confidence in yourself and being able to say, yeah, I can say no. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's definitely a skill you get being in grad school over time. So So we have uh, another tradition on inspiration dissemination, and that is we ask you for a song to provide. So what song do you have and why did you choose it? Um, so the song I chose was Frontier, Frontier Psychiatrist by the Avalanches. And I chose this song because the song I really wanted to play, I can't play on the radio, <laughs> Broccoli by Big Baby Drum. I recommend that you go look it up. And that song has brought me endless hours of entertainment at work. Um, but I chose this other song because when I'm like solving structures and scooping crystals. I listen to a lot of obscure music and this is a song I really enjoy and that I often find myself listening to when I'm scooping crystals. So can't wait to hear it. So this is called frontier psychiatrist by the avalanches. Yes. Awesome. And we'd like to thank Kelsey for coming on the show. Uh, And for you listeners out there, this is inspiration dissemination. We're on every Sunday from six to 8 PM. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Mr. Kirk, Dexter's in school. I'm afraid he's not, Miss Fishmore. Dexter's truancy problem is way out of hand. The Baltimore County School Board have decided to expel Dexter from the entire public school.